Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am Jeff Wall, your host. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University and a clinical pharmacist at a big hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. How you doing? Hope uh, you, wherever you are, things are going okay and you're having a good and productive week. Uh, thanks for listening. This is a podcast where we try to do our best to give you the latest information when it comes to pharmacotherapy and how it's going to affect you uh, at the bedside, whether you're a provider, a prescriber, a physician, pharmacist, it doesn't matter. We hope to give you guys the latest information to kind of do your job better, basically. And, and uh, thank you for listening. Today is a episode for my critical care uh, homies, if you will. I do spend quite a bit of time in the ICU here, here in my hospital. And so I always try to keep up on, on the latest on this. We're going to talk today about a paper that was just recently published in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy that took a look at what is in all honesty, a controversial subject, which is corticosteroids and septic shock. Now, of course, septic shock is something that has not disappeared despite the, the pandemic. I wish it had, but if not, it's still actually one of the most common causes of death among critically ill patients, accounting for more than 40% of hospital-related deaths in the United States. Uh, you know, the general general number we kind of tell families and patients septic shock is that the average mortality is around 40%, and that the general rule of thumb is that in someone who is in septic shock, for every organ system that is knocked out. So, you know, if they've got acute kidney injury, acute liver injury, respiratory failure, each one of those adds about 20% to the overall mortality. And so your mortality can rapidly increase in those patients. And despite, I think, some advances in, in, uh, in the treatment of, of sepsis, that number really hasn't budged in the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, you know, we are better at delivering antibiotics quicker. We're better at starting pressors. We have new pressors that we can give people, you know, things along those lines. But really that 40% overall mortality is, is, is kind of, you know, stubbornly stayed there for, for a long, long time. And so, um, you know, certainly anything we can do that may increase the outcomes in septic shock certainly makes sense. And the saga of corticosteroids and septic shock is actually kind of an interesting one. And you could probably do a whole podcast on that. But suffice it to say that in the early 1980s, uh, there were some large studies that looked at high dose corticosteroids and septic shock, the theory being that, you know, this is a pro-inflammatory state. That's why patients are hypotensive and unfortunately found that, that those early studies found that uh, there was an increase in mortality. And so that was kind of abandoned until the early 2000s, where a couple of small studies looked at lower dose corticosteroids, not gigantic slamming doses, but what in the endocrinology world are kind of called stress dose steroids, right? That kind of 50 to 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone Q8. And what they basically found in some small studies was that patients who got corticosteroids who are on uh, pressors for septic shock, it basically got them off the pressors faster. And early studies never really showed in any other benefit other than that. Then the landmark cortica studies were published in the late uh, 2000s that took a look at uh, diagnosis and treatment uh, as related to septic shock and corticosteroids. And so the first part of the cortica study is where they actually did adrenal studies on patients. So they did a, a serum cortisol and a cosentropin stim test on these patients and basically found there was no relationship at all between the results of those laboratory tests and outcomes. And prior to that, I, I certainly remember where we would get you know, cosentropin stim tests on 
on everybody who had septic shock and we kind of abandoned that after that. And then the second part of the cortica study was the corticus treatment study where they actually gave patients, again, these kind of low doses of or stress doses of corticosteroids and found that again, it got people off pressors, but there was no difference in outcomes as far as length of stay, mortality, stuff like that. The problem with all those studies is that none of them were really ever powered to show those differences. And then finally, the adrenal study was published a couple of years ago that really kind of answered this question and finally found you know, this study was actually power to show a difference in mortality. It overall did not show a difference in mortality, but it definitely showed that people got off of pressors faster, got off the vent faster, and got out of the ICU faster. And so because of that, the more recent 2021 surviving sepsis campaign guidelines basically say that it is reasonable to consider corticosteroids in patients in septic shock. So the big question, though, is when do you start them? You know, um, I've talked to, to uh, clinicians in this area who think, well, they really have to have to show that they're not going to turn around really quick with pressors. And so I usually wait with six to 12 hours for starting them. And then I know other clinicians like, well, if we're going to do it, I'll well just go ahead and do it. And so the timing of when to start corticosteroids in patients in septic shock is still kind of up in the air. There's been a couple of other studies that have tried to look at this. There was a small study done that looked at time to vasopressin discontinuation. Patients uh, were started on hydrocortisone within nine hours compared to after 10 hours of the initiation of vasopressors. And in this one perspective study, they actually found a mortality benefit in those patients. But this was offset by another study that was actually a randomized controlled trial in China that actually did not find a difference in reversal of shock and mortality depending on the timing of, of hydrocortisone in those patients. And so, again, kind of you know, up in the air about where, where things are going. So that's where this study kind of, kind of comes along. This was a multi-center retrospective observational study done at three hospital healthcare systems in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, which included about 80 intensive care beds. So these were, it doesn't look like they were part of all part of the same system, but it looked like they were basically in the same community. And looking at the authors, my guess is that the uh, authors decided to kind of pool their resources together to try and get enough numbers together to try and answer the question, does timing of hydrocortisone in septic shock make a difference? So this was a retrospective cohort study. Again, it's hard to do randomized control trials in, in the ICU for a variety of reasons. And so this was a retrospective cohort study. Uh, they included in their study patients over age 18 who had a medical diagnosis by ICD-9 or ICD-10 of septic shock, who did receive continuous vasopressor infusions and also received hydrocortisone between 2014 and 2019. And that's the kind of the, the cohort they looked at. They allowed any vasoactive agent, though my guess is that the vast majority of them received norepinephrine, but they did allow epinephrine, dopamine, vasopressin, and phenylephrine. Patients were included if their hydrocortisone doses were less than 300 milligrams a day, because again, we know that higher doses of corticosteroids don't seem to benefit. And there was probably another reason they were on that. So I think this is a way to, to basically make sure that the patients were on steroids for their septic shock and not for some other indication. They were also had to be on empiric IV antibiotics as defined by the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. They did look at just uh, intermittent infusions of hydrocortisone. There has been some uh, studies that have suggested that continuous infusions of steroids may actually be the way to go, but that's actually not standard of care in the United States. Um, and so we actually just give intermittent doses of hydrocortisone when we give stress steroids for, for septic shock. They were excluded if patients had cardiac basoplegia syndrome so they were post-cabbage or something along those lines. They had received corticosteroids within 30 days of admission, had a medical history of adrenal insufficiency, had documented cardiac arrest within 30 days, and then patients were either pregnant or had history of incarceration because of um, IRB issues and patient information issues, basically. So now we had this cohort of patients from 2014 to 2019 who had septic shock, 
who were receiving pressors and receiving hydrocortisone. And then they divided this big cohort into two groups, one who had received uh, hydrocortisone within 12 hours of the initiation of pressors, and they were considered them the early group. And those who uh, had hydrocortisone initiated 12 hours after vasopressors considered the late group. And they defined the onset of shock in the study as the time of vasopressor initiation. So what did they look at in the study? The primary outcome in the study was time to vasopressive discontinuation, which again was the one of the primary outcomes in the adrenal study and the cortica study and really all other studies that have taken a look at hydrocortisone in patients with septic shock. They also looked at other outcomes, including in hospital mortality, ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay, dose of norepinephrine equivalents are required, uh, any IV fluids required, and then of course looking for side effects. They wanted to look at insulin requirements from the initiation of vasopressin because of course when we put people on, on corticosteroids, we increase their need for insulin because they're probably going to get hyper, hyperglycemia. They also finally looked at the initiation of renal replacement therapy. So one of the big problems in all these studies with corticosteroids and septic shock has been power and, and making sure the study had enough patients to find a difference. I commend the authors. I think they did actually a pretty good job of doing the statistics on this study. They estimated that they'd need 120 individuals in each group to receive 80% power for a mean difference of 12 hours between groups until vasopressor continuation. So basically, if they were to see a difference in 12 hours of the discontinuation of vasopressors, they need 120 patients in each group. And they used, uh, I think, pretty standard statistics. And then for nominal and categorical data, I think they used all the correct tests. They also did propensity score matching, which I think is really necessary in these kind of studies, because of course, you've got a pretty heterogeneous population here. You know, people get septic shock for all sorts of reasons. They have all sorts of different morbidities associated with them as well. So they did a propensity match score model, looking at a number of variables including age, gender, body mass index, presence of hypertension, diabetes, congestive heart failure, COPD. They also calculated a, a, a SOFA score, uh, which is the sequential organ failure assessment for those who are not practicing in the ICU. This is a way for us to kind of standardize the acuity of patients who have a sepsis or really any other critical illness. It also can be used as a, as a prognostic indicator. And so patients who have a higher SOFA score have a higher mortality as well. They also matched patients by their source of infection, the use of Fludrocortisone and midodrine, and that could again be an entire other podcast about you know does midodrine have a role in patients who are on pressors for septic shock, and then maximum dose of pressors received. So again, they had this, this group of patients. They then did a propensity score matching, and really I think did a pretty good job trying to uh, adjust the paper for confounders that would tend to lean a study one way or another. So that's what they found, and that's how they developed the study. This is still a bit of a controversial subject, though. I was glad to see the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines finally kind of came down on the side of saying it's reasonable to do. Now, full disclosure, we've actually been doing it in my ICU for years and years because I think as a group in my intensivists and I have always kind of felt that, you know, getting people off pressors is actually in and of itself probably a good outcome. And I'm kind of an old man, so I've, I've, seen, I've seen a lot of patients on pressors in the ICU over a long period of time. And pressors in themselves are, are not benign agents, as we know, and they have their own problems, not least of which is tachyarrhythmias and other things along those lines. So that was actually the primary outcome in this, this study that we're talking about today, and there was a number of secondary outcomes as well. What did they find? Well, they did have 240 patients that were included in the study, so they met their power. As far as baseline characteristics, the average age was 69. SOFA score was relatively high, about 12, what, what you'd expect to see in, in, in this population, so that translates again to a mortality of right there in that 40% range. Uh, mean lactic acid was 5.1 in the patients who received early hydrocortisone versus 3.4 in patients who received late hydrocortisone. MAP was 63 
in those same groups. Other than that, there was really no difference in, in the baseline characteristics between them. The cause of septic shock was mostly pneumonia or mostly presumed pneumonia in the study. And there was no difference in the baseline use of either midodrine or fluticortisone as well. So once everything was done and they did the propensity match analysis that resulted in 99 patients in the early group and 99 participants in the later group. And once they did that, they found that early hydrocortisone initiation was associated with significantly a decreased uh, duration of vasopressor use, 40.7 hours in the patients who received early hydrocortisone versus 60.6 hours in the patients who received late hydrocortisone. And one of the arguments that you could make, you know, and, and one of the one of the, the traps that someone could fall into when, they, when you do a study like this is if somebody dies from septic shock, would that be counted as a failure? Because you definitely were gonna, are going to be off vasopressors if, if you pass. And so it is, I think they did a good job and noted in, in the results that patients who were on vasopressors at the time of death, that was censored in the time to event analysis and not counted as vasopressor free at the time of death. So they, they, you know, that would have been an easy trap to fall into. And I think the authors did a good job of getting around that trap. The shortest time to vasopressor discontinuation was actually only 42 minutes. That's pretty good. Not something I usually see, to be honest with you. They did a linear regression model and they noted that for every hour, hydrocortisone was delayed from the start of vasopressors, increased the duration of vasopressors by about an hour. So that, that was kind of interesting. Looking at secondary outcomes, there was a statistically significant decrease in ICU stay, 3.6 days in the early group versus 5.1 days in the late group, and hospital length of stay, about 8.9 days in the early group versus 11 days in the late group. They did not see a statistically significant difference in, in hospital mortality, uh, but the numbers were lower, 42.4% uh, in the early group versus 48% in the later group. Again, keeping in mind that this study was not power to show a difference in mortality. No, there was no difference in the volume of IV fluids administered during the first 72 hours of shock. You could argue that could be another confounder if the early group received a whole bunch of fluids that might get them off pressors faster, but they didn't see a difference in, in IV fluid administration. They also did not find a difference in the need for renal replacement therapy, or, and, and interestingly, uh, they didn't find a difference in total insulin requirements in between early and late, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, one would assume that patients who got earlier hydrocortisone would be more likely to have more uh, hyperglycemia requirement or insulin. That's actually not what they found in this study. Then they did a post hoc analysis. So again, always keeping in mind that once a post hoc analysis is done, this doesn't prove anything. It's more hy hypothesis generating and proving. But they wanted to take a look at a type of vasopressor. Maybe patients only benefited if they were on norepinephrine or not dopamine. They wanted to look at weight. You know, again, maybe patients who had a higher BMI weren't likely to benefit things like that. And they looked at time of different vasopressor initiations and things like that. When they really broke it down in all these post-hoc analyses, though there wasn't any difference, they basically found the same outcomes they found in the primary analysis, even when they broke things down by type of vasopressor, dose of vasopressor, or weight. So a nice post-hoc analysis, but again, doesn't really affect things because they found essentially the same thing in all these different subgroups. So what do you kind of take away from this. Well, again, as the authors themselves point out, this is a retrospective cohort study. So as is beat into all our heads, we know that this does not prove causality, it shows an association. So the bottom line is this does not prove that early initiation of hydrocortisone does in fact, uh, you know, decrease ICU length of stay, get people off pressors faster, stuff like that. But it certainly didn't have an association with worse outcomes, and it certainly didn't have an association with side effects associated with them. So since the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines have really said, yes, it's reasonable to consider this, you know, I would say, 
say that this should give some comfort to those who are considering corticosteroids, that if you're going to pull the trigger on this, it's reasonable to probably start our hydrocortisone earlier in the patient's gotten vasopressors than later. Now, again, all clinicians and who work in the ICU will tell you that they've seen patients that have been on pressures for just a couple hours and they turn right around. And, and yes, in those patients, it's usually, in my experience, patients who have uh, sepsis from a urinary source and, you know, they've gotten, you know, a nice big bolus of IV fluids. They've gotten a good jolt of antibiotics that has, has really knocked out a lot of, of the bugs causing the problem. And they turn around really, really quick. Yeah, you could argue, you know, if it's something like that, why even start corticosteroids? But that's not the usual. I mean, and at least in my experience, once patients have committed to vasopressin or vasopressors, that they're probably going to need them for, for 12 to 24 hours in most cases. Now, again, in many cases, and, and I'd say in, in a lot of cases, we're able to turn them around in that 24 hours because we're basically, you know, the antibiotics are kicking in and, and, we're, and we're able to basically stabilize the patient so that no organ systems kind of go down until the antibiotics kick in and the patient's own immune system kind of kicks in. That's kind of the normal trajectory is what I see. And so, you know, other than the patient who, you know, gee, you, bear, you start, you start, uh, you know, norepinephrine, you're at 0.05, you're at 0.1 mix per kilogram per minute. And then all of a sudden they seem to turn right around their, their maps go up and you can back them way off. You know, to me, it seems reasonable that hydrocortisone should probably start it early. So I would say probably within the, probably the first six hours of vasopressin initiation, because it's been my experience anyway, that if you don't turn around within that first couple of hours, you're going to be on pressors for a while. And again, while this doesn't, you know, prove uh, for a fact that early initiation of hydrocortisone helps, um, it doesn't seem to have any harm associated with it. And the, the sad fact is, is that a well-powered randomized controlled trial will probably never be done on this. And so this and some of the other studies that, that we've looked at may be the only data that we have that helps us, you know, give an idea about when you want to start hydrocortisone in these patients. Again, this has a lot of pros to it, even though it's a retrospective study, not least of which, again, is that propensity match scoring. And I think that really does help deal with confounders. But, but again, yes, of course, because it's a retrospective study, it doesn't prove anything. So will this change my practice? Well, in Frank, not really, you know, my intensivists and I have, have long been believers in the use of low-dose hydrocortisone and septic shock patients. But I think this, this for those of you who are starting to use or hydrocortisone in these patients, you know, the question about when to start them, I think this gives you some evidence to suggest that there's no harm in doing so. And in fact, may have a benefit, you know, it may not, but it may have a benefit and, and should be reasonable to consider. The other question I'm, I'm often asked by my residents is, okay, so someone's been on, you know, hydrocortisone for three or four days, and and now they're there. We've we've gotten them off the pressors. They're extubated. They're doing great. We're going to send them to the floor. Do we need to continue or taper uh, hydrocortisone? And really, in the studies, like the adrenal study, they just gave a set amount over time. And so, if you want to follow what the studies do, you say, well, you just keep giving them steroids until until basically, you, you know, at five or seven days are done. My result, my thing has always been that if they're stable enough to leave the IC you and their off pressors and their pressures are doing pretty good. The pro-inflammatory phase of sepsis is probably passed and there's probably no benefit to being on steroids. So I usually just stop them. There's usually no need to taper or anything like that. Again, most of these patients have been on corticosteroids for less than 10 days and, and, and at relatively lower doses. So there's really little fear of, of rebound adrenal insufficiency. So there's no need to taper and like you can just go ahead and stop their hydrocortisone as, as they're heading to the floor. And that seems to have worked really well in my hospital over the years. And I think that that's something to consider. 
consider as well. So, so bottom line with the study is, you know, yes, it seems that early initiation is at least associated with some benefit and not associated with harm. And if you are an ICU clinician and you're wondering about when to start them, I think starting them early certainly is reasonable based on the study, though, again, does not prove that there's a benefit. So that's it for this week of Game Changers. Thanks for listening. Until next week. Uh, until then, remember, time flies. Um, I don't know where it's going, though, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thanks for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com, where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.